As he gets downstairs, this guy pulls a, a big uh, a hammer, but it was like one of those big hammers, yeah. and start hitting my dad in the, in the head and in oh his back. God. Wow. And I could hear the cracking, like it was just happening. Wow. So me, without thinking, just ran down. I flew like Superman and punched the guy in the face. And that's all I remember. Everything just stopped. Daily, it has become more difficult to look at the scope of opposition to the Shah of Iran and still see his monarchy surviving. The end of Iran's monarchy came early today when Khomeini's followers took control of the palace of the Shah. Khomeini, almost unknown outside of Iran just a few months ago, returned the hero, the man who from long distance had led the revolution to topple the Shah. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Today's guest is Armin Armiri, who became a political refugee at the age of 13 when he was forced to leave his native country of Iran and ended up spending most of his teenage years living on his own without his parents in refugee camps in Eastern Europe. Eventually, Armin made his way to Vienna, Austria, and finally the United States. Since his arrival in our country in 1989, Armin has blazed a meteoric path from busboy to waiter and bartender to manager and owner of some of the most iconic clubs in New York City and Los Angeles. And all that before starting his career as an actor, producer, and director in major Hollywood films. Like many, many others who were displaced by war and political upheaval, Armin didn't plan on becoming a refugee. It was a fate that was thrust upon him at the age of 13 and a future that could have been bleak. He came to this country with nothing, no network of friends, no family, and little formal education. But what he did bring with him was his optimism and grace and strength of spirit. We're very glad to welcome the charming and charismatic Armin Armiri as today's hero behind the headlines. I was born in Iran, Tehran, in the 70s, early 70s, to a, a middle-class family. Mom came from a very um, kind of a highly thought of like a family in Iran, doctors and uh, generals of army, and you know, just very um, kind of a fabulous sort of a background. Mm -hmm. And uh, dad came from a very lower class. He was self-made in, in a way. Uh, he was a makeup artist and a hairdresser. Uh, which was not a very uh, easy thing for me to say in school or just anything to be proud of because is that's not what the, the men were supposed to do in Iran at right. the time. And so um, they met. Uh, Mom wanted to become an actress. Um, she moved to Tehran from the city called Shiraz, which most people know the wine it comes from. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, they met. He was supposed to work on her hair and all that stuff for her new film. And uh, they hit it off, and I guess he fell in love madly. And uh, he showed his uh, control side from the very beginning of uh, not being okay uh, with her pursuing acting or mm. an arts. 
so sort of took away the uh, the headshots and all that stuff, and basically their life began, mm-hmm. and it was a lot of hardship. So what was it like uh, growing up in Tehran in the 70s? That was a difficult time, right? That's before the revolution. Yeah, the revolution yeah. happened in 79, right? and uh, I was uh, born in the early 70s, and uh, for what I remember, it was a hardship between mom and dad, and the, the class issues, and the fights, and the insecurities within uh, what existed for a man to not be expect, accepted by the wife's side and you know mm-hmm. all that stuff the in-laws mm-hmm. i guess he was financially struggling very much so and uh, i was at home with my mom the whole time and so i grew up with my mom and uh, my relationship from the beginning with my dad was very uh, difficult uh, because in a sense uh, he was a very controlling person beside that he was uh, very jealous of my mom oh. And so my relationship, which was supposed to be a wholesome relationship with your mom, I always felt like that there was a bit of a opposition towards that. And so, yeah. Like you were closer to her than he was, or she had more confidence in you. That's right. You know, I, of course, a lot of people love their moms, and right. you know, I respect that. But there was something so special about this one that I had with her. She was a very physically and spiritually a beautiful person. And it was very hard for him to take because she was basically the flower of every um, um, party or Mm -hmm. whoever would meet. They would like madly fall in love with her. And they had a very interesting friends. They were all artists, like some of the top like musicians and actors. So it was always in that kind of scenes. And uh, what was interesting, and I don't know if that's how it was here, but in Iran, as a young child, a kid, when we went to these parties, Parents didn't really care whether you were sleeping or how you sleeping, as long as you were just chilling. They were partying and having a good time, and you right. were just a part of it. So I do remember these really unbelievable parties mm-hmm. since I was, you know, a little boy. And maybe I, later on, I got into more of that on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what it was. Huh. And, and so I spent a lot of summers with my grandparents my mom's side he was a general my grandpa was a general of army mm-hmm. in the city called Ahwaz which uh, the palm trees in California actually some of them come from that oh, wow. region yeah, huh. yeah. and uh, it was it was it was nice summers growing up there but uh, the the tension between mom and dad was always something that uh, it was it was like a pain in my stomach because then I also didn't have anybody else to share it with and so um, I was always kept it in, in, in myself. So you were what, like seven or eight when the transition started to happen in terms of the Shah yes. getting sick and leaving and the opposition. That's right. So you were old enough to be aware of all that. I was very much so. I, I was going to school. I do remember all the great things like the Caspian Sea, all those things that we get to see some of these old magazines of like people dressing up so nicely and mm-hmm. the music scenes and then there was fashion and yeah. everything was just like, well, people saw that. And there was also yeah. another layer yeah. that later on turned into a revolution that people felt like that they were being not looked after. Like, and I especially think, in the countryside. Especially in the countryside yeah. and people like, you know, like Khomeini or whoever else at that point, they used that very much so to to um go against the uh, the government but nevertheless it was some beautiful uh magical time for me 
uh, whether it was with my grandparents or we would go to these parties, uh, the only the bad part that I do remember was the fights between the mom and dad. And then uh, the summer before the winter of which the revolution happened, there was a bit of a, you know, talks were happening, people were gathering, things were happening on the streets. And yeah. uh, I was very much aware of it at that time. I think I was uh, eight years old. You said it correctly, seven, seven, okay. years, seven years old. So you start to feel the change in the air. Start feeling the change in the air. And then people were chanting on the streets. They mm -hmm. might get like, you know, they would chant and run back in, in, inside. And mm -hmm. there would be all these sort of, uh, you know, underground talks of what's about to happen. And uh, I became aware of who Khomeini was um, and what happened to him and, you know, all this education. Because he was exiled in Correct. France at the time. He yeah. was exiled. First, I think he was exiled to Baghdad okay. or, or somewhere in, in Iraq. And then from there, he was the move to, uh, to, to Paris or outside of Paris. And look, a lot of Iranians, they, 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 they miss having Shah at that time so much that they forget that there was also other problems too nothing yeah. comparing to what's happening right now right so i do not want to get into the argument who right. is better or who right. is not so it was it was great for some people correct and then for a lot of other people it wasn't it was not great exactly yeah. exactly and you but know, i think everything i've heard about tehran in the 70s it was like it was like the paris of the middle east yeah, I mean, Tehran is a beautiful city, like mm -hmm. physically, I think, and, now, and I don't know about now, I haven't been back since I was a kid. But what I do remember is that what's amazing is that there's a mountain in, uh, you know, in the sort of your view of the city. And then you get to see the winter coming mm. as the top of the mountain starts getting snow capped. And so you sort of see the seasons right in front of your eyes unfolding. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think Iranians are by nature, whether it's a poetry or Gilgamesh or anything else, is that we are very much of uh, storytellers. And then just when Khomeini came back and the revolution happened, as yeah. we call it, everything sort of just changed. Armin grew up in a time of political upheaval in his native Iran. In the mid-70s, while he was just a kid, more and more people started to call for the end of the regime of Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, who had assumed power in 1953 with the help of British MI6 and the CIA, and after a coup that disposed the democratically elected Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh. Under his rule, the Shah westernized and modernized Iran, particularly in its cities, but he became increasingly repressive to critics in the Islamic religious community, intellectuals, students, and those on the left. Opposition to the Shah started to coalesce around exiled Shiite leader Ayatollah Khomeini, who initially promised a return to democratic constitutional rule and reform. Widespread protests and strikes forced the Shah to flee the country in January 1979 and after a brief and violent interim, Ayatollah Khomeini emerged as the leader of what was called the Iranian Revolution. But as Khomeini consolidated power, what many had hoped to be a broad-based anti-dictorial people's revolution turned into an Islamic fundamentalist power grab. More and more modern-thinking people like Armin's parents were horrified. 
there was a period of a time that all the men from the neighborhood will have guns and mm-hmm. uh, they will put sandbags and protect the neighborhood as they were drinking beers and having a good time, you know? <laughs> and they were thinking that something amazing was going to happen because the promise in the air was so that, hey, uh, you're from Iran and the oil money should go into your pocket. Mm-hmm. And we can, when we come here, we're going to knock on your door and we're going to give you money for, you know, and everyone was like, oh, that sounds great, right? Yeah. Which none of it ever happened right. to this day. And so, but it was the sentiment was like, oh, Shah has been stealing our money and this new mullahs are going to come here and they're going to like take care of us. So that's, that's how the air was changing. Mm-hmm. And then so we had a, uh, I guess it was a prime minister named Bakhtiar. Then he, later on he got, he got assassinated yep. in, uh, in, in Paris, I think. He was set up as one of the interim government heads. The country was a mess and we were in a very destable uh, place. And I, I guess you do remember right after that, uh, the, the, the war happened which Iraq found Iran in such a weak place, vulnerable yeah. place, they yeah. decided to come and, you know, start the uh, the attacks, yeah. which America was very much behind it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So you were in Tehran during the whole Amer- uh, embassy siege yes. and all that. Yes, yeah, so we even drove by with my dad. We drove by the uh, uh, the embassy, and I was just that scene that we all know that people are jumping over the, the fences and all that. I saw that with my own eyes as wow. a, a little boy, yeah. you know. And uh, I, I got to be honest with you, even even the slogans that they were making us say in school, uh, which it was like, "Hey, Shah, this is this is not going to become one of the slogans, or this is not going to become you, you're not you're like Pinochet." We're not going to let this thing happen. They were like comparing a lot of that. And yeah. there was there was a really a great, I'm getting goosebumps right now. There was yeah. a great sense of, uh, you know, this is our land and we're yeah. going to like make it better. Nationalism. Yeah. We're yeah. going to make it better. It wasn't really about like, oh, we are Muslims or we have to like pursue Islam. Right. It was more about the country itself. So that that religious agenda was kept much in the background in the beginning yes even Khomeini I remember some of the promises that he was making if I'm remembering it's like oh we're just gonna come and we're yeah, just gonna no, do no I remember this, that as well you yeah. guys gonna do with that with democracy yeah yep. mm-hmm. and none of it uh, as soon as he arrived as you do remember one of the uh, first things they asked him was that how do you feel after 15 years landing in Mehrabad mm-hmm. uh, the, the, uh, the, the airport and he says nothing and I remember we were in we were, has and everyone, the family members still like looking at each other. What this cold hearted dude, man. Yeah. He's coming back to his country and he feels nothing. Yeah. And so that's how it began. And I remember as soon as he arrived, so we were in school with girls, and as soon as he arrived, we were forced to separate now. Wow. From the boys and girls in yeah. the school. And then as soon as he arrived, I remember within six months they forced uh hijab and wearing things around scarves around around women and it was like they started like really fast to wow. brainwash and yeah. sort of like flipped everything around and then yeah. there was this whole assassination so at the time when it happened it was very interesting because there's another a couple of groups named today and um and then there is a there's another one that is escaping my mind right now uh, mujahideen and there were like different groups who were trying to get a hold of, uh, you know, Iran's government. And there was all these wars happening on the streets of mm-hmm. Tehran mm-hmm. and killings and all that. So um, everything started changing. The wow. schools start changing. We wow. had to learn 
Quran now. I had to learn Arabic in, in school because wow. I had to understand Quran. And the boys' schools were different than the girls' schools. And everything sort of began. Wow. So and that must have, for you, what, what was that like? That must have been very unsettling, right? It was. Look, I, beside the fact that, you know, I was brought up in a family that was, you know, so different, mom and actress, singing and dancing and all that stuff, it just didn't feel right within my own soul. I do remember, you know, uh, the, one of the things I do remember is coming to age of understanding, like, you know, I like girls and I want to be around them or talk to them. And I do remember on the street once I was talking to a girl and one of these, do you know those uh, 4W to- Toyotas? Yeah. It pulled over, pulled me on the side and beat the living crap out of me. Wow. And just for talking to this girl. And these were revolutionary guards? Revolutionary guards, that's right. So you're just talking to a girl, totally innocent. A truck pulls over, guys in black and beers, they come out, they beat you up. They beat me up really bad, and they threw me in the car, and they took me for like a couple of blocks just trying to scare me, and they threw me out like a, you know, a rag doll. And uh, before this incident, so these were like kind of like uh, happening a lot. So in school, you know, I I play basketball, play basketball since I was a kid. And um, to them, it's a very um, American thing. You know, anything that had something to do with the American sort of style that would be against. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was wearing shorts, as you would. And the, uh, the principal brought me in, into the office, locked the door, and starts beating me up. Wow. And I'm getting beat up really bad. And I'm bleeding, actually crying now as you imagine you're you know 10 11 year old kid you don't know what's happening and i'm crying i'm telling him why are you beating me and he's looking at me he says because you're wearing shorts you're trying to turn other guys on whoa so if you are a 10 year old kid you don't understand what he really is saying is that he's the one who is turned on but at right. that point you feel like you've done something so wrong and so i do remember going home and all like bruised up and my mom asking what happened to me, and I, and, you know, I just told her what happened. And all these little by little things that. And there was, was no protection. There was nothing. Nobody to turn to. Nobody to turn to. I remember, you know, having my head shaved right in the middle of it. Uh, I remember having jeans, and the, the the principal just cutting through the jeans because I'm wearing American, you know, Lee. And uh, it was just getting one after another. I was like a trouble kid. No. I was a trouble kid at home. I was getting beat up by my dad for, for various reasons. And then I was a trouble kid in school. But at the end of it, I was not. Like, it was, I was not a bad kid. I was just, you I, know, just being a kid. Must have been very confusing. Confusing because you think it's your fault. The most confusing part of it is that you feel like you're the problem. And um, I do remember uh, getting to the point that uh, I couldn't finish school. Like, I was, I was, I was so nervous. I was nervous in school because of the night before and whether has my mom has left the house and she might never return again and I might be stuck with this guy, which is my father. That was a huge fear. So I couldn't concentrate on the, on the content in school. Mm-hmm. And in the school, now I was gravitating towards playing basketball and hanging out with cool kids. And then they will beat me up in school because I was just different. So I, I feel like that, you know, it, I was just, I feel like, I was a trouble kid. Yeah. And um, the, revolu- uh, the war happened. And the war 
Uh, it was a very interesting time because... Uh, and that was 1980? 81? Exactly, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, we had to do is like you know like even with our flashlights we grab it with a magic marker blue and yeah. you blew out the uh, the light yeah. so they can't see it uh so you camouflage it so i remember all this thing but i have to say some of the greatest memories that i've had in iran was during the wartime because the parents are together the kids are together and they celebrate and they dance and the music there's mm -hmm. alcohol mm -hmm. you know but I do remember one fateful uh, evening that 40 kids died in our neighborhood. Wow. It was, it was a birthday of some kids and the, the bomb was dropped on that building. Wow. And uh, I remember we were all in the basement and as the, uh, as the bomb hit the ground, it, there was this light, flashlight, that it came under the garage and lit up everybody. Mom was crying. People were scared and I was crying and the kids were in there. And I remember the next day we went on a bicycle ride with everyone and the kids were like laughing at me. And I'm like, what are you guys laughing at? And they were like, oh, you were crying last night. You were scared. And that really affected me. It's like, I was like, I wasn't supposed to be scared. Like, right. you know, bomb dropped on us guys. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, yeah. yeah. And um, that happened, but nevertheless, I think it was such a coming together as families mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, or, or friends of the same building that it was just a lot of fun, but things were getting tough for me. I remember my whole family had to move my grandparents from Ahvaz, which was close to uh, Iraq. Mm -hmm. They had bombings happening, oh. so they moved in with us. So we were living nine people in three-bedroom apartment, and it was very, you know, difficult, especially yeah. for my dad. Felt like all these years they have sort of like never give him the credit for who he is, right. and now out of a sudden he's the one single-handedly taking care of like nine people. So the, the 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 concept of like the fight at home and all that stuff was constantly going, and. Um, I was getting worse grades in school and uh, one day I came home and uh, I, I told my dad that I, you know, would you, would you help me to get out of this country? And when I said, when I said that, I was 13 years old. Like I had no... But you just didn't feel... I don't feel, I didn't feel right. I didn't belong to that. Look, religion, concept of the religion to me is one thing, you mm -hmm. know, uh, I've, I'm not a religious person. Mm -hmm. uh, as you know, we have spoken many times. I, uh, you know, I have my own practice and spirituality. I believe in a lot of different things, but the one that is uh, on any shape, whether it's Islam, Judaism, or Christianity, that is putting you under some sort of a pressure to be something. And if you're not, you're not a right human being. It never felt right to me since I was a kid. Yes, I feel the same way. Yep. And so uh, when I said that, and he, I think the part of him was like, it was a light bulb went on. Mm -hmm. He's like, oh, wait a minute. I could get rid of the kid. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We don't get along. Right. I don't want to have him around. Yeah. It was just like go somewhere and see where it goes. But he also had a, a bug of getting out of Iran because he loves drinking yeah. and partying and yeah. all that stuff. And it wasn't it was very hard in Iran. So he's like, yeah, let's move to Turkey. 
And he was very quick to sell everything. So he sold everything my mom. So the first idea was everybody was going to go. Yeah, me, mom, and dad were going to go. And, uh, and But it, the idea came from you. Idea came from me, and he ran with it. And the whole thing to convince my mom was that, hey, this is good for, you know, for his you know, life. Do this thing for him. And, that or that. and when it came to me, my mom would do anything. And so she, he sold everything that she had worked so hard all these years to collect. To, in the name of, oh, we're going to go to Turkey and we're going to live there. And uh, we took off, um, said goodbye to everybody. He didn't tell me that he had put money in a couple of his boots mm-hmm. and in the car. Mm-hmm. I guess at that time you were not allowed to take money out or a mm-hmm. dollar out, but mm-hmm. he needed it. So, mm-hmm. But anyhow, halfway to the border of which is Baku, and uh, Turkey and Iran, mm-hmm. helicopters came and they started coming down on us and arrested us. Wow. Took us into this military base, me, my mom, and dad. And finally, he basically admitted to what he's done, but he says, let's hope they're not going to find out. Oh, he, oh he, tell, he confides it to you. He confided to me and my mom, and yeah. he asked me if I would take the boots after he took the cash out of the, the heel of the boots and go and throw it uh, outside of the bathroom. So I wore the shoes, and I went and I opened the bathroom, and I threw it, but it was snowing, and it was a snow everywhere, and the boots were brown. So it was very easy for these people to identify. So within like 10 minutes, they came in and they gave him a beating. And then they put us in the car and they took us back to Tehran to this very infamous uh, prison. It's called Evin. Oh, I've heard of it. That's where they keep all the political prisoners. That's right. That's right. So at age 13, I was in this cell with my dad in Evin prison for what? For literally, I think it was like 1200 bucks. 1300 bucks i think it was even that much and in the middle of the night they came and separated us and when i saw him in the morning on the line to go back he was all beaten up and bruised up and you know so we were in front of a judge and my uncle was in the military and he showed up and he basically grabbed me because you guys are not going to have this kid here whatever you want to deal with him you deal with him but not the kid so i was released after two two days being in evan present and uh but your parents remain mom also was released after Mm -hmm. two days like myself but dad was there for another i think three four days and now by the time they released him i literally had something like 25 hours left to be able to leave iran because in iran before you turn uh, turn 14 uh, you can't leave you know, with your parents' passport. After mm. that, you have to wait until you get your military sorted oh, out. Wow. So you can't leave after 14. Oh. So I had like last hours yeah. to get out of that country. Before you turn 14. Before you turn 14, exactly. Wow. So we start driving really fast and we got to the border. And at that time it was like six hours left. And the guy's like looking at me. It felt like midnight express. You know, it was just like sweating and they didn't know what it was. And they, they let me go in. In 1980, Iran's new government, then at loggerheads with the United States over the seizure of the U.S. embassy in Tehran by Iranian militants, seemed to be isolated and disordered, and its regular armed forces gutted and demoralized. Iraqi President Saddam Hussein saw this as an opportunity to reassert 
long-standing territorial claims against Iran going back to the late 60s, particularly over the east bank of the Shayat al-Arab waterway that makes up part of the border between the two countries. He also wanted to annex the oil-rich province of Khuzestan, substantially populated by Iranian Arabs. Surprising Iran, Saddam Hussein launched a broad-scale offensive into Khuzestan that met unexpected strong resistance and bogged down 75 miles inside Iran. It served also to rally the people of Iran around their new government. Fighting was fierce and waged for eight more years and only ended after an estimated one to two million people died. Armin, who was then 13, had to leave the country or face compulsory military service upon turning 14. His parents, who didn't like the new Islamic government, were desperate to spirit him out of the country and save their son. So now I remember we passed the, uh, uh, the border of, uh, of Baku and now we're going into Turkey. And I remember the first spot that my dad wanted to stop by and get some beers and, you know, just, just say, hey, we made it, right? And so they wanted to go to find a pension to put me in. It was in Ankara, which is the capital of Turkey. Uh, we went and when we walked into these pensions, these young kids, man, they, they, they look so worn out. They just look so just no life, no hope. My mom, I remember she started crying and uh, she's like, I'm not going to leave my son here. And so now we decided to go to Istanbul, which was at the time was a, a mecca of uh, con men mm-hmm. and the one that traffickers, are traffickers and, yeah. and they will get you a passport or send you to Sweden or Turkey. They oh, make sorry. all kinds of promises. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they will charge you or sometimes they will grab the money and they will never actually do anything for you. We start living in Turkey, in, 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 uh, in uh, Istanbul. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to school. I went to international school. Uh, Dad was spending the money that he didn't know how to, like, he, he didn't know. He didn't speak the language. He was looking for jobs, but he would go hang out with this Iranian, like, conmans, trying to figure out, like, what to do. And they were constantly, whether robbing him from money or giving him wrong information. So... I remember this. This this is where everything sort of changed. Yeah. Um, I remember we were living in this neighborhood that there was a Muslim uh, kind of a community there, you know, and because it was cheaper. And uh, we were on the third floor. Mom used to uh, wash clothes and hang them, and the water of the clothes start going into this uh, deli downstairs. And this guy comes out. He was a Muslim guy with long beard. He start cursing at my mom. And at that time, I spoke Turkish pretty well I, I picked up turkish really fast mm-hmm. and i knew what he was saying he was saying some really like you know nasty stuff yeah. to my mom so i told him like i'm gonna come down i was 14 years old and yeah. my dad stopped me and he went downstairs and i'm looking as he gets downstairs this guy pulls a a a, a big uh a hammer but it was like one of those big hammers yeah and start hitting my dad in the, in the head and in oh his back God. wow and I could hear the cracking, like it was just happening. Wow. So me, without thinking, just ran down. I flew like Superman and punched the guy in the face. And that's all I remember. Everything just stopped. Everyone, the neighbors, the, the, the shopkeepers, everyone was just like, whoa. And so it was the first time I, I physically showed up for what I thought it was right. 
And I think something shifted there. I think my dad and my mom realized that, okay, he could handle himself, right? But we quickly moved out of that uh, uh, neighborhood because we thought it was going to be a dangerous place to live after, after the incident. So he came up to me. He says, I don't have any more money left, my dad said. I have 4,000 marks that I could pay a con man to take you to Vienna, Austria, which this con man, I said, is almost like a, a dormitory. He could live there and the life could begin and he could go after and pursue his life. And I said, okay. I, uh, you know, so I you're going to go, we're going to leave, you're going to go on your own now. You're going to go on your own because we're going to go back to Iran. We have nothing left. You right. want to come back. And we can't, we can't make, a, I can't make a living here. I can't make a living here. There's nothing left for yeah. me. And we're going to go back to Iran. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to do here. So I said, okay. At 14. At 14. I said, okay. And uh, it became about this game of saying goodbye to my mom. Yeah. It was just uh, one of the, Sorry. It was one of the hardest um, experiences of my life. Mm -hmm. um, it took us, I think, about two and a half weeks to finally be able, we keep going to this bus to be able to leave, but then we hug each other and cry and, and then go back. And so finally, this time, the comment is like, hey, man, this is the last time. This man. is it. This is a, so I remember sitting in a in a in the bus and just looking at him without any tears and anything and i just was like i was ready to go so i was there with a with a with a, a greek passport mm -hmm. it was a fake passport mm -hmm. to be able to get me through bulgaria yugoslavia and then another kind man was going to come take me into vienna to become a refugee there and in the border of uh, bulgaria and yugoslavia as i was passing uh, the the guy the bulgarian uh, guard said something in greek I didn't respond. He said again something in Greek. I didn't respond. He pulled me on the side and he says, you're not Greek. And so, and the comment says, man, no matter what they say, just keep like saying, this is my passport. And it was a communist time. So they kept me there for two days in prison and finally released me at the border of Yugoslavia and Bulgaria. I had now 2000 mark left in my pocket. I was a gullible kid. And this Turkish driver came up to me and says, hey, I'm going to Yugoslavia. You want to come with me? And I said, yeah. He goes, I said, how much would it cost? He said, how much do you have? I said, I have 2,000 mark. And he says, that's exactly how much it will cost. Yeah. So he grabbed all my money and we started traveling through Yugoslavia. And this is during the Tito regime? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally communist. Totally communist. I couldn't even call my parents. So halfway through, we're going to go through Ljubljana and Zagreb, which would be closer to the border of, of Vienna, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, of Austria. And um, I was sleeping and there was, uh, there was an older man next to me. I woke up around two in the morning, it was raining really hard. And there was a younger man was sitting next to me and he was looking at porn magazine. And uh, so I just glanced and I turned my head to the other round and he kind of nudged me to say, hey, look, they're like showing me all these things. And he was making sexual gesture. So I just found myself in this place that I had to do something. So I pushed the guy's head to the front of the bus seat and I jumped from back of him and I ran to the, to the, the bus driver. And I said, this guy is pulling this thing on me. He was Turkish too. He's like, no, you're lying. Da, da, yeah. da, da. Basically, they threw me out the bus in the middle of Ljubljana, which uh, in next to this gas station. And I was sitting there with two. At night. 
at, it was like three in the morning. So I was sitting there with two luggages and the rain's coming and I'm just, I don't know what to do. I didn't even know where I was yeah. and, you know, phone calls, nothing. And uh, I remember there was a, uh, the universe, by the way, has always been that way with me. You know, it's just been so generous and gorgeous about like taking care of me. You know, I see a man uh, pumping gas in his car. Uh, I found out later on they were Hungarian. It was an old car with his wife and two daughter. And every time he was pumping, he would just turn and look at me. And then he would put his head down. So finally, when he was done pumping the gas, he says to me something in Hungarian. And I didn't understand. So you speak English. He's like, a little bit. So what are you doing here? So I'm trying to go to Zagreb. Um, and I have no way to go there. And then he looked at me. He walked back to his car. He sat in the car. He sat there for five minutes. And then he got out. He says, come here. And he put my uh, luggages in his car. I wow. sat in the middle of his two daughters and he drove me. They went out of their way. Instead of going to Hungary, they drove me all the way to uh, 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 Zagreb. And they dropped me in front of the hotel, which I was supposed to be. Wow. So it was. So you had no money at this point. I had no money at this point. There was going to be money waiting for me at the, at the hotel, about like $500 or something. So when I got there, you know, I got the room. They had the money for me. I was going to wait for the con man to come put me on his passport to take me in. And then uh, I became friends with this Iranian guy, young kid, who was there also. He had nothing. He was just, he was a refugee in Yugoslavia. I mean, there was a refugee status, but at the time, if you're a refugee in a, in a, in a communist country, good luck to you. It's like nothing. Yeah, you're you, know? not, you, you mean nothing. Mean nothing. Yeah. And uh, he, I was taking a shower and he stole all that money and he took off. So I came out of the shower. I was just like, oh, what happened to him? And then when I went to try to get dinner, I realized I have no money. Yeah. So it was all these little things happening. So I waited in Yugoslavia for about five weeks. Yeah. So you're just stuck. I'm stuck. You can't communicate with your parents? I finally did because yeah. at the time they used to send those, what do you call them? Oh, the telex? The telex. Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> From Forgot Yugoslavia. about telex. Yeah. Yeah, it was telex. So you sent a telex to your parents. I, I sent a telex to my parents and they knew. And then so the con man came after five weeks and put me, he had my name in his passport, but he asked me to um, jump through the border and he will meet me down the road. Uh -huh. So it was like about an hour walk through the hills between Austria and Yugoslavia. It was my first like sort of a running away. And um, he picked me up, took me to Vienna. Uh, I was there for five, six hours. And then he took me to this town called Treiskirchen. Uh, Treiskirchen is about an hour and a half away from Vienna. And this is where Hitler used to keep his soldiers. Mm -hmm. So it's this old castle uh, that... The, uh, AKA called uh, uh, Hilton. It was that bad that they called it Hilton. And at the time, uh, this camp held on to all the refugees. Oh, wow. Uh, Russians, gypsies, yeah. Polish, Hungarians, yeah. Iranians, Afghans, Czechs. You know, there was, everyone was in here. And it was- It 19, was a big camp or- It, it was, was a big camp. It was a yeah. big castle. The big castle had different divisions and different areas. Uh -huh. And the one that I stayed in, which was called Hilton, on the third floor is the quarantine uh, that you have to stay until they figure out whether you're a danger to their society or not. And they figure out if you're a political, you know, reasoning. And after that, you're released into the, to the main population uh, where you start living. 
And so I, I was introduced to this very um, tough guy in the camp uh, named Mamad Komole. Komoles are um, a, 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 a party okay. in, in Kurdistan. Okay. They're Kurdish people okay. that they fight against the resistance of Iranian government. And, 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 and so they, have their, they look for their own independence. Okay. And they're very tough people. Like you know, they've done things, and this fellow was missing a uh, uh, his his thumb, mm -hmm. and he says that it happened during using Katyusha, shooting you know the uh, the, uh, the Iranian soldiers or whatever. Yeah. Anyhow, he had a, he had a very interesting, colorful you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it was one of those people who had three sweat beads on his nose, no matter if it was spring, <laughs> summer, or winter. I don't know if you ever met a person like that, but that was his identification from far yeah. away. And, and missing he was some. sort of like a, a, a leader within the camp? Within the camp. And he spoke a little awful German, so they said that he was going to translate for me. So we went in a set in the quarantine, which was this big castle and like 18-foot ceilings, and the guy was using uh, the typewriter, and every time he will press the button you will hear it all the way down the hall it will like oh. echo and i'm sitting in front of this uh, uh officer and he starts you know asking me questions where i'm from what's my name and i saw the tough guy Mamad, is having a hard time translating what i'm saying and i spoke a little english obviously yeah. and i said hey excuse me i, I speak english and he yeah. goes like you you speak english me too what is your name and within a second i made myself an enemy number one in that camp and that was the tough guy mama because he felt disrespected ah, the fact that, that you were going to take over his job or something something and he was like do me a favor or whatever have you you know come in there and now all of a sudden he was he felt you know uh threatened and then uh, he told me in in farsi some bad words and yeah. he says i'm gonna mess you up basically wow so this 14 year old kid in the uh, uh <laughs> in the quarantine is already has an enemy yeah and uh, so the life began in the in in this thing of uh you know we would go down the kitchen bring food uh i was in the room with 47 people wow my first initial experience uh i remember this is always comes up to me when i watch godfather do you remember Godfather 2 when we get to see him coming to Alice Island mm -hmm. and he's sitting down and he, his foot is not reaching the floor, mm -hmm. dangling? I sat on, uh, so there were bunk beds. I, I, mine was on the, the, the lower and I was sitting on that bunk bed and looking out the window and there were winery mm -hmm. at the end of the, 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 the refugee camp and it was raining. And that, that moment of looking into my life, what it's going to become, it's always one of those unbelievable images, yeah. always in the back of my head. Wow. And, um, and now I'm missing mom really bad. And the bathrooms are so awful uh, that I couldn't use them. They were so dirty. So yeah. I didn't use the bathrooms for about nine days. Wow. And so I broke out with fever and yeah. all sorts of things. They had to take Just holding it all in. Just holding it all in because it was just disgusting. Yeah. You know, coming from yeah. the, the background that I came from, clean, you know, everything. And so they took me to the hospital. I was in a hospital 48 hours. Um, just basically, they were taking care of me while I was there, fever, breaking out. And uh, so uh, three and a half months there, I had my first sexual experience in the quarantine with a Hungarian girl. And right after that, I remember uh, around like two in the morning. I mean, when I say sexual experiences, like 
nothing just right. just just kiss or a hug or whatever you want right. to call it and i remember one of the officers at two in the morning opened the door and pointed out at her to come and took her for about a couple of hours and when they came back she was packing her stuff to leave yeah. basically she had to do some kind of a favor for him in order for her to now go into the you know to the to the main building and um, sexual favor sexual favor i would assume like through yeah. two in the morning the right. boy was there right. to talk about right. it yeah, right. yeah and so i was, was she older than you or she was but at that time was older than me period of time in my life that everybody was older <laughs> <laughs> i can't even believe i'm in this age yeah now, but it was a time it was like and i lied about my age all the time you right. know to be and to appear older to be and did i did like you know persian kids are a little hairy so i think you know having a little mustache or right. whatever helped me, helped me to yeah. like you know say i'm 18 19 right. you know right. and uh, mind you in iran uh i was a huge fan of uh michael jackson and uh-huh. john travolta right and, and, and so you know <laughs> i was you know i was that kid break dancing yeah. you know all that stuff and Could you dance yes okay I'm, I'm a good dancer by okay. nature my mom was a great dancer okay and then so so you could do a moonwalk and stuff i could do a moonwalk still to this day or just do spins <laughs> on get, the floor gotta see that later. <laughs> no you don't <laughs> so um i came down after three and a half months from quarantine uh, i still didn't have my badge to leave the camp mm-hmm. and i was sitting down having uh lunch uh, at the kitchen, and there was a Hungarian family sitting next to me. There's a lot of Hungarian Czechs and everything. And uh, this dude keeps saying, Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson. And I was like, what's going on? I was like, oh, Michael Jackson is coming to town. I was like, what? And I was like, it's impossible. Uh, because to me, to meet Michael Jackson was everything that this dream was made out of, you know, for me at that age, you know. So. And here you were in a circumstance where being near him probably seemed completely unimaginable just breathing the same air forget about like seeing him just knowing that he's in this area and uh, i'm like wow and so i had no money and i didn't even have a badge to get out of the uh the camp but you know i was a bit courageous and jumped from the the fences and jumped from train to train to train and it took me about four hours which would have taken 45 minutes because every time the train, what do you call it? Oh, the conductor? The conductor would come, they would throw me out because I didn't have a ticket. So you're trying to get to where? I heard he's performing at this place called Stadthalle, which was in Vienna. It was a big concert event. Okay. And if I'm sure you remember, not that many people do, uh, Kim Wilde sure. was opening for him. Yeah. So uh, I got there and Kim Wilde was performing and I'm standing outside and everyone had 50 shilling at the time to pay to go in. And I had no money. Yeah. So I'm just standing there and like, you know, uh, just very excited that I'm here. For, yeah. Forget about like seeing him. And then start getting darker and the gates start getting shut down and people were going in and I hear people saying, Michael, Michael, and my tears were coming down. Just, oh my God, I'm here. Like I yeah. hear, you're going to hear Michael. All the gates closed and one in front of me stayed maybe like half closed and two securities were smoking a cigarette and not paying attention. And I put my head down again like Midnight Express and I walked in and no one stopped me. Wow. And I ended up on a second row <laughs> behind this guy who had her girlfriend on, on, on his shoulder and Michael came with uh, an air balloon 
And he landed in the middle of the concert space and he jumped out of the air balloon with a wolf mask and he spun and he pointed right at my direction and yeah. saying, Thriller. And I, I, my, I, you could only imagine, <laughs> I, I was just like, what? The girl on top of the guy passed out. Wow. Because she couldn't like family too, too much. And so everything cleared up and it was just me and Michael Jackson for three and a half hours, like wow. Willy Wonka, golden ticket. Yeah. I had it. Wow. And so this was my first manifestation in, in, in all its glory. And yeah. that's something that I imagine. It was my dream. It was yeah. mine and no one else's. And here I am. He's wow. performing. How powerful. It was very powerful very powerful i remember to this day right now i'm like just talking about it it was just like so i, I ran and I, so you're in the second row i was in the first row now. oh first row because these people this she fainted she and fainted went away. so i was now right like there. right there like i was watching his socks when he was moving around this was like right in front of my eyes wow for and it was all the music that i wanted to hear from the thriller which i was yeah. a fan and so i remember uh finding a couple of quarters shillings and calling my mom and just screaming and say i met michael jackson i saw him he like performed for me just for me it really felt like it was just performing for me and uh, so that's that's how my life began yeah. in 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 vienna and now we're living in the camp with so there's two iranian rooms um 14 people and 16 people all bunk beds mm -hmm. And I'm meeting all sorts of, uh, you know, different. And to this day, uh, I have to be honest, some of my greatest dear friends right now, four or five, six of them are from that time. Most amazing part of the whole thing for me is that imagining, and it's been a big, huge part of my life, imagining and having the faith that the universe will deliver mm -hmm. at the right time and the right place. Mm -hmm. And that was my first experience with someone like Michael, that kind of a magnitude of dreaming. And, and you couldn't have, at the time, you couldn't have gotten a bigger star for anybody representing young people in the world. And America. And America. I mean, I think you, people don't realize, like, yes, Coca-Cola, and yes, right. landing in the moon. But Michael Jackson single-handedly was such a PR yeah. piece for America. Yeah, that, that music, that, that album was... Every played everywhere in the world. Everywhere yeah. in the world. And the music video that it was created yeah. for it and all that stuff was a whole world, you yeah. know? And yeah. I wanted a piece of that world. I wanted an America. I wanted Michael Jackson. I wanted to perform. I wanted to be a part of it. I just thought to myself, God right. bless, is a land of opportunity. That's for sure. You know, how I feel about it today, then, then it's a total different, you know, opposite things. But right. I still think is one of the most blessed geographically places on the on earth and so i had an american dream more than anything it was american dream uh, to be able to express myself to be able to dress like john travolta or walk down the street with my collars up i feel like that you know I'm, you know what i mean stupid kid yeah yeah you know? yeah yeah and no, express uh, yourself express myself yeah. yeah and um and so uh i started living in a in a camp with uh 32 iranians uh, 14 and 16 in different rooms in the bunk beds. But they were all older than you. They were, everyone was older than me. And these are all people who had escaped the Khomeini 
regime. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and also for different reasons, yeah. though, right? Like, you know, if you would ask the tough guy, he, because he was uh, Komole, yeah. right? If you ask uh, another, we had like a, a, a two-day guy who was like a, you know, kind of a communist, you know, mm -hmm. it was this thing. You would ask me, like to this day, people was like, how bad was it, what, was it that you had to go through this yeah. in order to come here or yeah. to get anything? I mean, no one was putting a gun in your head and people are right about that. But more than a gun is when you feel that your spirit is being shackled down. Yeah. Between 1980 and 2000, an estimated half a million Iranians fled their country to seek a better life in the United States and Europe. A large number of them were professionals, entrepreneurs, and academics. After seeing Michael Jackson perform in Vienna, Austria, Armin went to the U.S. Embassy and applied for admission to the United States as a refugee. But he was turned away because he was only 14, which meant he was too young. He also had no one to sponsor him in the United States. So Armin returned to the refugee camp he was living in with gypsies and other displaced persons from Russia, East Asia, and the Middle East, and waited for another opportunity. He didn't have much, but he had a dream that lived in his heart, to arrive at the place that for him symbolized freedom, artistic expression, and hope. That was the United States. Nobody was helpful. Even the Austrian government were not helpful to me because they say, well, we can't give you a passport because you can't prove you had an immediate danger of losing your life as a political refugee. Ah. You're 14 years old. Like, right. what could have happened? And at the time, Iranians will come up with so many different fake stories, stories, and, and yeah. also documents. Yeah. I remember we, we had one guy in the camp. Bless his soul, he died actually in the camp. He used to make uh, stamps out of potatoes. Oh wow! So he would cut exactly inside of the potato, and then he would put the ink, and he would stamp, and it would look really good. <laughs> so we would pay him for yeah. for those things. But I was like having a hard time um, doing anything. So. I started basically started living my life in Vienna. And the good thing that I had going on was that, uh, you know, I looked somehow, I don't know, Spanish or, or Italian. And there's something was happening at the time in Vienna. If you were Italian or Spaniard, like girls loved you and you were like, you know, you were the, you were the hot thing, you know? Right. And so you were given, you were, now you're allowed to go out of the camp. Now You've I was got the pass, so you can go out during the day. Correct. And right. I was w working in um, in the kitchen. For you're allowed to work six months, three mm -hmm. months at the time, but a total of six months. So I work in a laundry uh, uh, area for three months, and then in the in the kitchen. During that time, we had a lot of interesting runnings with the different nationalities. Right. We had gypsies. They were very dirty. What I mean by dirty is that they would do things. Uh, in the in the shower um, that you do not want to use the shower anymore. And they would get there at six in the morning. We had the gypsies that had their own area. There were Albanians that they were to be afraid of. They really Scary were. Guys. Scary guys. Uh, they would cross their you know country to come to Austria. They would do a lot of things for money and went back to their countries, right? Uh. And so I do remember one faithful night uh, we were like just 
it was like around 11 30 everyone's have their dreams to come to america or whatever everyone's waiting yeah. there's this waiting time and know? there's probably a lot of talking and exchanging stories and dreams yeah. dreams someone's playing a guitar someone's crying missing their parents you know there's like it's all this thing. we had one guy who was the uh, the president of one of the big banks in tehran and now he was at the place that he will be drinking a lot of rum and he was losing his marbles and he was just talking to the trees and blaming the trees for the the displacement that he's in and uh this one albanian kid walked in 18 year old kid with a bunch of uh pants jeans and everything yeah. and he threw he was drunk he yeah. threw it on our table and he says buy it and there was one guy who was uh, kind of a martial artist yeah and he goes like uh no we're not gonna buy it get the hell out of here and he didn't want to get out and kick the guy out yeah i felt a little weird because i knew the kids albanian but you yeah. know the bathrooms were outside i was going to brush my teeth and come back in and this was an old castle so the 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 the, the steps were so large yeah. and everything that will drop the whole like a corridor were here it was it was emphasizes and uh, i hear this like thousand foots coming up ta, 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 ta. and i look and i see about like 30 albanians are rushing up to us oh god so i i ran in we put the fridge behind the doors and the, now the knives were coming in because it was wooden doors so the knives were coming in, the head of the knives were coming in. Wow. And I remember the guy who was the, the, the president of, of the bank was standing at the edge of the window, was about to jump. He goes like, I'd rather die on my own and being killed by these guys. And so this finally the, 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 the camp police showed up and you know, the, the, the rest is a history. But uh, it was a lot of stuff like that was happening in the camp. And now um, I was growing up really fast in this, eight nine months in the camp sure. i was just growing up really fast and now i was going out to the clubs you know it was up <laughs> until like four in the morning take yeah. the last train and what i used to do was that because i didn't want anybody to know i was a refugee so what i would do is that i will walk for about one town mm -hmm. and jump on the train from that city because i didn't want them to think i am from Trieskirchen. he's got a dark hair he's right. from there so I started work, you know, hanging out out and uh, meeting girls. And um, at one point, uh, I went to this nudie. There was a, there was a lot of nudie, uh, nude um, reviews type of thing, or? Uh, lakes and oh, stuff. In, oh, okay. In in Vienna. Oh, okay. Outside of Vienna, and uh, there was like you know people like very comfortable with their nudity right. in Vienna for some reason. Who knew? Uh, who knew? I had yeah. like like when you go to the to uh, um, saunas. Men and women are just nude sitting yeah. there, right? Yeah. You know, to me it was like, you know, it was it was a show. Right. You know, it was like, cause God, Whoa. coming from Iran, from that situation, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. now everyone's nude. Yeah. So I was I tend to go to those places, not right. for anything like you know, right. pervert or erotic. It's right. just that it felt right, you yeah, know. Yeah. And it was a beautiful lakes. So anyway, I I, I met uh, an artist uh, lady uh, who was much older than me. She yeah. was thirty three, and uh, I was fifteen. And we hit it off. Well, I, well, as I said, I didn't look 15. Yeah. So, and I also lied and I right. said I was not 18, 19. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, just to cover, cover her. her. Yeah, 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 yeah. She, she was not at she fault. She didn't realize. Yeah. And so we, I started living with her. So my life sort of uh, was going. So now you're out of the camp. I'm not. I still have my oh. place in camp, but okay. I'm spending most of my time in Vienna. Okay. With her yeah. and then getting to know Vienna. And I start working in the bars. And you're starting to learn uh, Aust German. 
resisted it as long as I could because, you know, I love English. But I got to know um, German, you know, while I'm there. And right. I started working in the, in the clubs. I work in a, a gay bar uh-huh. named Why Not? Why not? Yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I was a bartender there, and uh, I started working, you know, in yeah. the in the in the really hot places and kind of cool places in Vienna, and I sort of became kind of a, a well-known sort of a, a cool dude, you know. But the, the dream of America, it was not, you know, passing by me, and yeah. I was just like constantly working on, you know, coming to America. And what about your your parents? Were you in phone contact with them? Still? I was in a phone yeah. contact with them. First time I spoke to them after that I left Turkey was I think four months or five months later. They wow. they I gave them my phone number working in the kitchen, so they called me uh, in the kitchen while wow. I was working in the that kitchen. That must have been an emotional call. It yeah. really was. Mom yeah. was, uh, but you know, what's interesting is that even after this time, I would think my dad would miss me personally. And would like pick up the phone and say, "Hey, son, how you doing? Are yeah. you okay or yeah. not okay?" None of that. Wow. It was just called say, "Hey, your mom's like really worried about you." It was always like, "Your mom's very worried about you." Yeah. And uh, so, we, you know, he wouldn't even like call to see if I'm all right or not. Jeez. That's that's the way it was. Okay, so you meet this woman, but you're still in in the refugee camp. I'm still in the refugee camp. Um, you know, I was also like, you know, I was 15, so I was seeing other people, and I remember. Uh, I think she saw me once mm-hmm. in Vienna with someone and she was really disappointed in me, as you would be. But, right. you know, I was 15. I right, right. Cares. Yeah, you're not ready for a relationship. A relationship. Yeah, with a 32-year-old yeah. woman. No, yeah, yeah. no. And what that entails, you right, know, I didn't right. even know. And then um, met a... So I moved from that camp and I moved into this sort of a dormitory in Vienna, which was paid by the government. And I started going to school and studying and uh, over there I met a, a lovely uh, a girl from uh, Michigan and uh, I guess she fell in love with me in Europe and glass of wine mm-hmm. and I fell in love with her Michael Jackson Coca-Cola yeah you know because honestly today <laughs> yeah. she, she represented she those. represented all of that yeah. you know and, and she was just a student she was a student yeah she was a student lovely lady uh, girl and uh, uh, she was studying German, and she was also was going to become an engineer, I believe. And she came from a very good family in, 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 in Michigan. And uh, we, we had a lovely time. I really loved her. And uh, I guess it was feelings were mutual. But then the time ca- came that she had to move back to, to America. Yeah. And uh, without me knowing it, my friends, my refugee friends, have taken her for a lunch in the UN in, in Vienna. That's where she was working, and ask her, "Hey, listen, you should like you could try if you could help Armin. You should yeah. help him. Like, you yeah, know, he's he's you stuck know, here. He's stuck here. Yeah." And I came home, and she put it to me, and I was very, very upset. My ego, my, my pride was like, "No, you know, da 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 da." Right. Like, you know? And she's like, "Come on, like, you know, I could marry you, and you could come to America, and then we we go we go from there. You know, no pressure." How old was she? She was two years older than me. At this time, I was 17, and she was 19. And so I got married when I was 17 years old. Wow. In, in, in Vienna. Vienna. In Vienna, yeah. with all my refugee buddies <laughs> yeah. on one side of the room, and her and a couple of her girlfriends <laughs> yeah. on the other side. And wow. I got married at 17. Legally, you're not even supposed to get married at 17. So yeah. I, I faked the, uh, 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 the, 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 the whole, whole thing. Yeah. And so we got married. Yeah. And... Uh, 
And I remember when I got married, I was having the best time of my life in Vienna at the time. Yeah. Everybody knew me at the right. time. I was a cool kid. Yeah. And it's like, mm, I don't want to go maybe to America anymore. But yeah. anyway, I went to Michigan. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and oh God, <laughs> you know, what a place to come from yeah. Vienna. Yeah. You ended up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Yeah. And you're like, what the what heck? Up, where am I? Where am I? What is this? You yeah. know? And they used to call me uh, John Travolta because I had a long hair. I was walking down the street. I didn't understand the accents. And uh, and her parents, I, I moved in with them. Like They didn't know we were married. Right? Oh. They had no idea. Her oh, father was working for the Ford company. Yeah. A lovely family. Nevertheless, they didn't yeah. know we were married. But where did this guy come from? So, <laughs> and did they know you were a, a ref, Iranian refugee or yeah, just some yeah. guy from Vienna? No, they knew I'm Iranian. They, okay. I'm sure they knew that like, I had nothing in my pocket. Yeah. They knew I was like nothing. So they were kind enough to, to take me in. Uh, the father had, he was sensing some. So he took me for this uh, ice cream ride around the Michigan Lake with his little, little six year old son. And he basically told me, if I find out that my daughter is married or has gotten married, I will take away her car, an arbor school, and everything. Wow. And he looked at me. And I was just like, yep, I understand. <laughs> so I called my buddy who was in the refugee camp, who was from America before. He was living in San Francisco. He says, come on out here. So I moved to San Francisco. And shortly, I found myself in some of the greatest time of my life because San Francisco was the beginning of the house music. Yeah. And it was like, kind of felt like Hayden Ashbury was coming back. And so it was a lot of full moon parties. Yeah. And to me, San Francisco gave me such an amazing education mm -hmm. when it came to finding God and spirituality within the music and mm -hmm. the mushrooms and psychedelic. Mm -hmm. That's what I really enjoyed mm -hmm. a lot. And I think a part of it was running away from the, a troubled past. Yeah, sure. And now I have found myself in this place that I could escape. Freedom and, Freedom. and just fun. And, and, and fun. So I, my sense of uh, a fashion and uh, style and all that, because, you know, San Francisco is a very liberal and semi-gay, you know, uh, a town and sort of like very colorful, you know, existence. And so it was really enhanced my... Uh, sort of uh, a living as well and I had a great time in San Francisco I did a little too much maybe uh, psychedelic uh, but uh, the time <laughs> but that's where I went to ACT I decided to become an actor and okay. follow what my mom was gonna do oh wow so I went to ACT for yeah. about six months and I realized that where I want to go which I've always looked up to people like Brando or you know Mickey Rourke uh, was to uh, they study in New York so I packed my bag and I made that move from San Francisco uh, to, to New York. And what year, about what year is this? Uh, I left San Francisco in 92. Okay. I arrived in New York in 92. Okay. You know, it was, it was difficult because the cold and New York could be a very... It's a rough place. Rough man. place. <laughs> it was very rough. And I ended up doing working in a, in a restaurant business, you know, mm -hmm. doing like, you know, waiting tables yeah. or what have you. I and did I, that too. Yeah. I found that very, it was very difficult because I was living a very free life in San Francisco. Uh, and now, now I was in this place. But again, the New York became a, one of the greatest teachers uh, in my life. Uh, the first year was very tough, so I moved to uh, Miami. So the Miami, one of the great things was that, you know, obviously great weather, and, you know, I started working. I, I did my first film 
uh, as as an kind of an extra on Sylvester Stallone's film, it was called uh, the the prof- uh, the, spe- uh, the professional or special with Sh- Sharon Stone. Sharon Stone with Sharon Stone. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, I, I did that, and it was like the close. I was 20 years old now, wow. and I was just like, my goodness, like this is my first taste of <laughs> like Hollywood, yeah, you know. Yeah. And um, and then at the time, Miami was very much of a, a winter place. Still is, but that time was more than ever. So eventually moved back to uh, New York and started living in Chelsea Hotel. Went to Actors Studio, uh, studied with a woman named Sandra Seacat. Mm-hmm. And the reason I wanted to work with her was that because she taught Mickey work and work with you know Al Pacino. And to me, it was like, those are this, the guys. Those are the guys, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so uh, I studied with her, uh, and then doing. I was bartending. I was. Bec- I became a very sort of a well-known bartender around town because it was very fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they started like you know asking for me, yeah. and I ended up uh, working for this very interesting woman named Amy Sacco in New York. Uh, she opened up this place called Bungalow Eight, and she has you know sent after me to to meet with me. So I met with her and I said, what is it that you do? And she's like, I'm doing a private sort of a, a membership club, uh, friends and family, and I'm looking for someone who's going to be doing the door for me. And to me, anything like waiting table was not my favorite thing to do because no, I, had to, fun. Yeah. I had to go to the table first and most important thing. And the other thing is everything that happened is your fault. Of course. It's like, I was a waiter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If, the, if the, the chef screws up or whatever. Your it, fault. It's your fault. And the, they take it out. The host you. was rude. Yeah. It's your fault. Right. And so bartending was next no, level up. You're in charge when yeah. you're the bartender. You're in charge and they give you your secrets. They have a yeah. couple of drinks and right. you become a therapist right, and, right, and, and right. all that stuff. And you're stuff. the cool guy. You're a cool guy. Hiding behind the bar. Women yeah. like you. Yeah. Men want to speak to you. So yeah. it was great. And then I felt like, oh my goodness, uh, doing the door would be even one step up, mm-hmm. you know? Because you're going to determine who comes in. It comes in, but also it was, it was more than that, Like Ralph. people and... Yeah, more than that, it was the space. I was craving to have a space that people don't come into it. And I think with the bartending, you had that like sort of a bar in the front and, you know, did yeah, yeah, people yeah, yeah. like, it was like, okay, this is your limit. With the waiting table, there were like two up my nose, you know? So uh, I'm like, sure. Little I know this job of doing a door, and especially because of my experiences, you know, work, you know, working or hanging out in nightclubs in Vienna, I had picked up certain, you know, stylistic, like, you know, way of doing things, which was different at the time in New York. And next thing you know, we became the the hottest place, you know, literally mm-hmm. in, yep. in, in, in. I remember. In, yeah. And yeah. They, they were comparing it to the Studio 54. And, yeah. and uh, 9-11 happened. 9-11 happened. And... Uh, New York changed, as you remember, yep. it's sort of a lot of things. And I was teaching uh, improv classes for this other lady named Susan Batson. She had a, a studio named Black Nexus. She worked with you know Tom Cruise and you know uh, Nicole Kidman. In our classes, we had Julia Binoche and Tatum mm. O'Neill. Wow. So we were doing some like really like you know heavy work. But meantime, I'm still dealing with the self worth. You know, even though I've gone through life and everything has been you know been taken care of somehow yeah uh my self-worth was that i didn't know what i bring to the table right and i think that was affecting my art it was affecting myself as a as a a human being in friendship my my boundaries were not very uh Mm -hmm. clear Mm -hmm. so excuse me 
um, I started working there, and next thing you know, I'm getting like phone calls from like Governor Pataki, <laughs> asking me for doing him a solid. Yeah, uh, I'm getting calls from like I'm getting followed, people threaten my life. Uh, because you didn't, they couldn't get him. Yeah, I mean, I just saw an article from page six that I actually put it up, which it was just I met Mickey Rourke. And we became really good friends. Someone mm-hmm. that I really wanted to, like mm-hmm. you know, looked up to as an actor. Sure, really hands down, he was the actor at he the was, time. For me, it was Brando, and then there was Mickey. Yeah, uh, just the just the the the, the tools that he had, yeah, or he no, had the charisma, the charisma, the sensitivity. Yeah, all yeah. of that was like so. And when I met him, it was like, oh my goodness, I met my hero. And then so I remember one night we were having a uh, a dinner at Cafe Habana in New York, and this dude approached me. And he wanted to get in a fight with me because he wasn't able to get into the place. Yeah. And so we got into it uh, outside of Cafe Havana and they wrote about it, what have you. It was just cool that Mickey happened to be there <laughs> and all that stuff. So, well, it became a, a very interesting place because I realized that uh, people, the p- dynamic of the power. Yeah. Obviously, say no. Yeah. No. Can't come in. You can't come in or no, I can't or yeah. anything no. Right. It turns people into stalkers. Yeah. They will wow. come hanging out outside, stare at you all night, like do things to you don't want to do to you or threaten you. So it became, and, and now as I'm teaching, now I get my first gig as, a, as an actor, mm-hmm. which it was a factory girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, a story about uh, Andy Warhol, yeah. And yeah. Eddie Cedric, and you know, it was George Hickenlooper, right? Yeah. I George, remember George. George yeah. Hickenlooper yeah. met me at Chateau Marmont. <laughs> and he says, you look like Undine. There was a character named yeah. Undine. He says, uh, you're, you're hired. So I, for the first time I walked into the Chateau Marmont, I walked out and I had a, my first really, uh, you know, a, a big gig yeah. in front of me. So we, we did that, uh, that film. And then I uh, did the film with Mickey Work called The Wrestler. Fantastic film. Uh, yeah. with, with Darren Aronofsky. I yeah. worked with these people. And I was getting some like really good you know, stuff coming my way. And yeah. what was great about it was that I was not like regular actors that depended on like you have to do any gig you got to do. I right. was making my own living. So it was all So you're good. still working at the club? I was at- still working at the club. But it was becoming harder and harder because the press was writing about me a lot. Mm-hmm. And people thought I liked it, but I hated it because here I was just focusing on the art and acting. And this was, I thought, just another paying gig like a, a bartender right and now is actually crossovering and is like really messing with my head yeah and uh i'm not until somebody came to me and says hey i have this space at jane hotel yeah come and take a look at it and i saw and you know i have this fascination with cuba yeah i don't know what it is and, and i have this fascination why 40s and the 50s right like pre-batista pre-batista yeah and yeah, it's I, a cool time. It's a cool time. I think I find it to be very romantic. Yeah, it was. The buildings yeah. and, and architects and the all dancing, that. The dancing, the, the music, yeah. All of that. Right. I said, I saw, I see Cuba. Yeah. And uh, I brought Trudy and Sting and uh, people like Ben Silverman, uh, Charlie Corbin, just a bunch of cool people that I knew from there and uh i said i want to do 1940s cuba and they're like let's do it so they put money behind me and next thing you know cipriani also became uh one of the partners Mm -hmm. unfortunately and uh so we had a great run 
uh, I created this place. It was the first time I designed a place, and I realized. So, I, it, mind you, I, I, I've done the acting, storytelling. Now I'm getting into telling a story within the space. Yeah. Which I found it to be actually a lot more satisfying than acting. Right. And now I'm telling the 1940s Cuban, you know, story here, and everyone's buying it, and yeah. everyone's loving it. And, uh, but I was unhappy because I wanted to do what I set my mind to do. Like I'm doing movies like, you know, The Wrestler yeah. and like Terry George's film, you know, uh, Revolution Road. And uh, I decided to, to end that mm -hmm. and, uh, and to move out and come to LA. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's the New York story of, mm -hmm. of, of my And what about Socialista? That was another club you that's were That's the Socialista, at. that's yeah. a Cuba. Socialista oh. was a, that's the one that everybody sort of came, Harvey okay. and you okay. know. They put money behind it. It became a very sort of a, a, a interesting place because um, that was on Ninth Avenue. That was on Jane Hotel. Oh, in Jane Hotel. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, it's on Jane and the West Side Highway. Oh yeah, I know. I've been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, we had a great time uh, until it no longer was fun for me because you know, for me to tell this interactive spaces to tell a story is not so much about like selling a beer and, right. and you know you make a you know living. Right. And so when it could have took his course and that was it for me yeah. and it was time for me to move I came out here to LA mm -hmm. I came out here um, Paul 70 uh, who's Chloe's uh, brother mm -hmm. uh, we did a place together out here and I stayed here I was doing films and TV and uh, yeah wow Armin arrived in Dearborn Michigan newly married and brimming with hope and ambition what he found initially wasn't what he had hoped for. Instead, he found himself a fish completely out of water, with no money, only a patchwork education, and no family or friends to lean on. After three months, he found his way to San Francisco, and then New York City, where he worked his way from busboy to waiter to bartender to doorman at the Inn Club Bungalow 8, and then owner and manager of his own club, Socialista. After studying acting, he secured important roles in Hollywood films like Factory Girl, The Wrestler, and Reservation Road. Recently, he's added to his resume as a director and producer. In 2020, he produced the award-winning psychological horror film, The Night, which was the first American-made film to be released in Iran since the Iranian Revolution of 1979. Like many refugees from wars and political and economic turmoil all across the globe, Armin didn't plan for any of what befell him. But he's living proof that we can never, ever underestimate the strength of the human spirit and the dreams that live in people's hearts. We thank Armin for sharing his inspiring story and we're honored to call him today's hero behind the headlines. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Our producers are myself, Frank Hobbs, and Apex Media. If you haven't already, please download, rate, review, and subscribe. And check out some of our past episodes, such as Three Day Firefight in the Valley of Death. And don't forget to tune in to the next episode of Heroes Behind Headlines. <laughs>